Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting debate uh, about recessions, and uh, we're going to get into that in a little more detail in just a couple of minutes. Uh, as uh, well as some people consider the inevitability of a, of a, a recession uh, is is just maybe around the corner, and the timing of this is going to be extremely important, of course. Uh, probably not in time for the October election here in Canada, uh, but there is some concern that, uh, well, by the time the United States goes to the polls, which will be in November of 2020, that uh, there could be some bad news economically, and that's always bad for incumbent presidents. Uh, probably got George Bush Sr. Uh, booted out of office. It wasn't the only factor, but it was a contributing factor, to be sure. They uh, He was riding very, very high in the polls, and uh, all of a sudden the economy tanked, and there was the support just gone. And uh, we've seen this happen in the past, too. So the, the concern here is how do you avoid these? And, and that's where the debate comes in because economists, some economists anyway, will tell you that, look, it, the, the economy works in cycles. There are going to be downturns. There are going to be great days and, and not so great days. That's all there is to it. But the concern here is that sometimes you can make a bad situation worse by some of the policies that you adopt or some of the ones that you don't use that probably should have been used. And that's where the debate's going on about the U.S. economy right now. And I know people think, well, they're picking on Trump. That's not the point at all. It could be anybody in the White House right now. It's because the U.S. economy drives an awful lot of other economies and certainly has an impact on an awful lot of other economies. So if they make a wrong turn, everybody feels it. And that's the concern that the G7 leaders, I think, were trying to express this past weekend, uh, especially with their one-on-one meetings with Donald Trump, that, look, at there are some of the policies that you have enacted here which are hurting you and us and making this situation, this precarious financial situation worldwide, even more precarious. And I don't think he got the message. I, I don't know if he just isn't paying attention or if he doesn't understand, but it, uh, it just seemed to fly right past him. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I can understand why a number of the other leaders are getting very frustrated about this. And we've already seen some of those economic indicators that are showing that, uh, you know, economies like the U.K., uh, France, and Germany are starting to have these downturns. Mind you, the U.K. is a bit of a unique situation because there's an argument to be made there as well that they've brought a lot of that on themselves with the Brexit talk and the impact that that's going to have on their economy. And there's a lot of very nervous people in the UK right now with the Brexit looming toward the end of October as to just what's going to happen and is it going to be a deal. But it was interesting to see that uh, just about everybody who met, and that's at one point was all of them, uh, was, okay, we're going to make a trade deal. We're going to do a trade deal. And that, a, a, a sense of congeniality, I guess, about exactly how they can move forward on these sorts of things. But it's all dependent upon whether or not the global economy is going to do well. And, of course, one of the factors in that is a, a country that was not there, and that's China. And the other one is uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now, which is why it was rather uh, interesting, shall we say, that the uh, Iranian foreign minister showed up at the G7 conference. He was invited there by President Macron. He did not have official status. He didn't sit on any of the meetings, but he did meet with some of the member countries, not the United States, apparently, and because the unrest in the Middle East right now is also a contributing factor to what's going to be happening. So there, there are so many pieces to this jigsaw puzzle uh, and, and we're just not sure where they're going to fit and the impact that they're going to have. But obviously, I, the the two concerns that I think a lot of leaders had and expressed, some of them more openly than others, heading towards the G7 conference, one was the environment, which is the first time it's really taken that level of a priority. 
And I don't know that a whole lot got discussed there. I mean, yeah, I did. They they find some consensus to say, yeah, they're going to do what they can to try to fight the wildfires in Amazon right now in the Amazon forest, and that that's good. That's laudable. But there are so many other environmental issues that these leaders individually have talked about. And they've talked about the impact that this is having on not just the environment, but on the economy as well, because they are tied together. But uh, Donald Trump's not a big believer in that. And so it didn't come up much. As in fact, when they did have a session about environmental concerns and what could be done about them and the impact they're having, uh, Trump didn't show up. It's not of any interest to him. So therein lies part of the concern. The other, of course, was the global economy. And the, the impact that not just U.S. policies, but to a certain extent, the U.S. policies are having on those. And th- that's not exclusive. In other words, it's not going to be totally an American's fault if this happens. But when you do some of the things that he has done and enact some of the things that he has enacted over the last little while, it makes this situation even more precarious. And therein lies the problem. So what we want to talk about here is whether or not there is going to be a recession. Some suggest it's inevitable. Some says, no, 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 you can avoid this. You can turn this ship around. Uh, there have to be downturns. But, I mean, the, the, the signals right now and the indicators are looking pretty shaky. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Ian, good morning. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, is there an inevitability to this? Um, I, I don't want to talk in that sort of really deterministic uh, way, you know, where it's, uh, you know, sort of like death and taxes, it's, you know, but let's put it slightly differently. Um, Milton Friedman, the late great uh, professor of economics at the Chicago University, won Nobel Prize, actually studying business recession, the business cycle. And as he put it, no politician, no economist, nobody anywhere in the world has ever figured out yet how to uh, abolish or bring the business cycle to an end so that it just grows and grows and grows and grows forever. Um, every business growth period in every country is eventually followed by a recession, a downturn. It's the old-fashioned word, a downturn. And um, so uh, I, I think it's likely, uh, quite likely, I mean, we're, we've been going for 10 years, which is a remarkable record, Never before in our history in Canada, the States, has a business recovery gone for 10 years. The average length is five years. And now these are just averages, I realize. Uh, just because, you know, average life expectancy is 80 doesn't mean you can't, somebody can't live to 90 or 95 or 100. But these are averages. And, and so, uh, uh, when you look at it, I, I think that it's, we're going to be in a recession of some sort or another in the next six to 18 months. I think it's likely. I wouldn't say, inevitable but likely well and again it's uh, it's by degrees isn't it Ian? i mean you yeah. know we've we've seen some some pretty ugly ones and some yeah. ones that were just kind of choppy waters for a little while and i guess that's the that's the unknown isn't it you're absolutely right in my lifetime going back to adult lifetime i'm talking from the 70s until now we went through two brutal recessions one was 1980-81 when rates went to 20% and the other was of course 2008-2009 when big banks in Europe and uh, in the states were going down like 10 pins um, and those are the two worst the two deepest and the two longest uh, recessions in uh, the last uh, 70 years uh, others were you know mild i mean they were you know a year or something like that but they we didn't experience the same unemployment i mean why People are worried about recessions from from, a, from an individual point of view. People lose their jobs uh, because companies lay off when demand goes down. 
from a corporate investor point of view, uh, they don't like recessions because, of course, the fact that the economy slows down means that businesses make less money and often they lose money. And bankruptcies go up, so investors can literally lose their shirts. So it's not something that people uh, uh, celebrate or look forward to with uh, enthusiasm, uh, whether you're an investor or uh, an employee working in a company. Ian, we know about the economic cycles, and you've explained that to us many times over the years, and we're thankful for that. But how much of an impact does policy have on those things? Um, it, that's what I spent uh, much of my time, literally as a professor, talking about and studying and doing papers on. Um, to what extent is policy uh, able to do anything about it? I, let me start by saying this. I think we, can, we now know, and this goes all the way back to John Maynard Keynes, that there are things that governments can do to make recessions less painful. So I'm not suggesting there's nothing that policy can do. I mean, I'm, there, it can do something positive. Whether or not it can, quote, end a recession, I'm very skeptical. But I, I, I'm very certain it can make it less painful by putting stimulus into the system that hires some of those people who are unemployed and can't buy their groceries or cannot, you know, make their payments on their car or their truck or whatever. So that's a good thing. Um, and, and that's a positive benefit, I mean, by that of, of policy interventions. Uh, the, uh, of course, the other thing is, is it becomes a stimulus to... Um, the stimulus becomes a stimulus to to uh, infrastructure spending uh, because uh, often we pro well, we as a society say oh gee we can't afford that that bridge is too much it's five or ten billion dollars you know we can't do it it's it's you know it's just too much right now and then along comes a recession and then what suddenly what we said we couldn't do becomes very attractive because we realize uh, we can get two for a two for out of it that is to say you get the bloody bridge built and secondly you're stimulating the economy at a time when it needs it so i'm i'm not completely negative about uh, a recessions or b the pol- the policy intervention there are things that can be done to as i said make it less painful on everybody uh, and there are two arms I mean, at least two arms i guess involved in this obviously there's the the political policy making that goes yeah. on but there's also the monetary policy information, yeah. and that's a different body. We have the Bank of Canada here and the, and the governor who sets that. Uh, down there, it's called the Federal Reserve, and yeah. uh, the chair of that uh, body right now is one Jerome Powell, who's been uh, vilified by Trump. Uh, Trump apparently doesn't care, believe in this arm's-length stuff, and he wants to set financial policy. Powell's resisting. You're absolutely right, and and I'll even I think there's a bigger fear than that because Trump will go. I mean, all presidents go; they can only stay in office for four or eight years. Uh, but the the bigger concern I have with monetary policy, which in plain English just means the setting of interest rates, short-term interest rates, is they're running out of runway. You know, when rates were at 20 percent in 1980-81, I was a mortgage manager in the Bank of Montreal in downtown Ottawa. Now they must have well, loved you. Oh yeah, <laughs> we stopped we stopped lending basically. But the point is, they had an enormous amount of wiggle room. When you, when the interest rates at 20 or 19 percent, you can cut that interest rate an awful lot of times, and you can just keep on cutting because you got so far to go. When the interest rates get down to one, one and a half, and two, where could you go from there? So you cut it down from, from one to uh, three quarters of one, and then you go to half of one. My point is they're running out of, and there are papers being written by central bankers saying, we're running out of firepower, we're running out of bullets, we're running out of ammunition. Uh, because what do you do when you hit cl- close to zero? It's called the zero lower bound, which is a big fancy word for saying interest rates at zero. And... And whereas fiscal policy 
is you can just keep on going. You print more money. You go deeper into debt. You you go deeper into death, deficit, and and that's classical fiscal stimulus. So instead of running a deficit of ten billion dollars, you can go to thirty billion, forty billion, fifty billion. Trump right now is at a trillion dollars annual deficit in the U.S. But monetary policy is constrained by the fact that eventually there's no interest rate left to cut because you're down to almost zero. And that's going to be very, very interesting to see in the next recession. What's the monetary people, the Federal Reserve and the States, Bank of Canada here, the Bank of England in England and so on, what are they going to do? Because classically, you're supposed to cut interest rates in a recession. Great. What do you do when you've cut all the way down to zero? How can you cut below zero? You can't. And on that contradiction of policy here, and you know, hopefully you don't want to see this happen all the time, but does that not lead to this instability in the markets that we've seen in the last seven or ten days? Yes, yes, I, I think it does. Um, I mean, I, I keep arguing, and I, I think it's absolutely critical to, to, for everyone to understand this and for every politician to understand this. The enemy of the market is not competitors. The enemy of the market is uncertainty, not knowing what, where the broad direction of the economy or the government of the day is going. And that is just deadly for uh, markets because when they're making, uh, you know, decision makers in these corporations are making decisions over, you know, opening a new plant and spending another billion dollars or, you know, those kinds of decisions. What do you do when you are not even certain where everything is going and the direction? Well, you, you say, I'm going to sit on my money. I'm going to sit on my hands. I'm going to sit on my decision. I call it actually in my classes strategic procrastination. And I mean by that, it's not you're not refusing to make a decision because you're afraid um, to make decisions generically. You're doing it because you just don't know which direction that the economy is going in. And so as a consequence, are you really going to risk a billion or five billion or three billion dollars when you don't even know the direction of the economy, the direction of interest rates, the direction of monetary policy? So that's when businesses become much more conservative and then they sit on their decisions that are pending. And when I say pending, you know, future decisions that have to be made. And, and that's deadly because that money then is not, to, that, that capital investment is not being invested in the economy. And uh, that's my fear with interest rates being so low now at the lower bound, it's increasing the uncertainty and increasing the likelihood that businesses will just sit on their cash reserves. And then we know that they're sitting on a lot of cash reserves. And one of the reasons they're sitting on cash reserves is because of this uncertainty of where the economy is going, where are interest rates going, and so forth. And, and we've seen that reflected in the, in the stock market. I mean, there was some terrible a couple of days, some big dives. Then there seemed to be some stability. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the attack started again against Powell, and all of a sudden, you know, yeah. calling him the enemy of the people. Uh, that, that can't be good for the market. It doesn't help at all. It really does not help at all. I mean, I get asked a lot by people, how come the markets are so confused, and why are they jumping up and down? And I said, well, whenever you see the markets gyrating way more than the normal, you know, variations every day, that's a bad sign uh, because it's it's not that these people don't know what they're doing. It's that there's all kinds of contradictory information coming in. These people live on information. I've talked, I've been to the trading desk in some of the banks, and they have these incredibly, they're often very young people, highly educated people, and they're sitting there, and they've got nine or ten or twelve terminals in front of them, and they've got just a huge amount of information pouring into their ear or into their head or through their eyes every nanosecond. 
and they're processing these enormous pieces of information. Uh, you know, the latest quote by President Trump, the latest quote by the Federal Reserve, uh, twitches in the Canadian-American dollar exchange rate, twitches between the U.S. and the uh, Chinese RMB, and on and on and on. And, and so they are processing all this information. And when, the, when there's more and more uncertainty, that makes the stock prices and the stock indexes more and more variable. And, and so they're jumping up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's indicating the amount of contradictory information out there and thus the amount of uncertainty out there. There isn't clarity of where things are going. So that's a sign, a signal, an indicator, a clue of how confusing these times are. So in times like this, the one thing you don't want the prime minister or the president or the, the head of the central bank doing is increasing the uncertainty. You want them to be pouring uh, oil on troubled waters, another cliche, uh, to try to calm things down, to try to reduce the amount of uh, uncertainty in the marketplace, not make it worse. Is there a, 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 a short-term thing they can do here? Because this instability can't go on forever. I mean, at some point no. it's going to break, isn't it? You're right. Well, on the on the presidential side, I think the single uh, thing he could do more than anything else is to come to a deal with China for the simple reason that they are the two largest economies in the world. If these were two tiny little countries, who cares? I mean, to be really blunt, who really cares? If they're two tiny little countries with small GDP and small population, they're not influential, they're not impactful. But when you've got the two largest economies on the planet Earth, one is 20 trillion GDP, the other is 12 and a half, almost 13 trillion GDP, and they are the two giants amongst all the pygmies. Well, of course you care, <laughs> and everybody cares about what the two giants are doing. They are the market leaders and the market influencers. So Trump, if he really wants to get help ensure that he gets reelected, I'm not saying it'll guarantee it, but it'll certainly it'll be a step in that direction, is he wants to get all this uncertainty uh, sent away that's being caused by, yes, Trump creating that uncertainty vis-a-vis -vis China. And this, the, the most certain way of uh, getting rid of that uncertainty is to uh, come to some kind of, I'm not saying a formal treaty, but just come to an agreement, an understanding with China that will uh, reduce and eliminate these tariffs and the uncertainty that goes with it. On the central bank side, I think it's increasingly likely in the next 30 days we're going to see a rate cut in Canada and in the U.S., uh, although, as I said, I'm just makes me really nervous because as we get closer and closer to zero, what are they going to do when they really, when things really get bad in the next recession? They'll have no wiggle room left. But right now, you're asking me what can they do? Well, they can cut rates by a quarter of a point uh, in the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada on that side. And on the fiscal side, uh, if Trump could come to an agreement with uh, with uh, China, that would tremendously reduce the economic uncertainty. And then if he could come to some kind of a deal with Iran, and I realize Iran is a lot smaller, but but let's remember it's, I believe, the third or fourth largest oil producer yeah. in the world. And so that feeds into and generates uncertainty in oil markets. So if he did come to some kind of a, an understanding or an agreement with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Iran, then that would further stabilize markets. So a lot of this stuff... We've got to jump in here. I, think yeah. I, I hope they're listening, Ian. <laughs> I, I do, too. Thanks so much for this. I always appreciate the time. Thanks very much, Bill. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.